Wow, as you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Mark, uh, I enjoyed those testimonies. It's testimony day here at the Father's Church, and we give thanks to the Lord for all the wonderful things that he's doing. Today we want to look at something that is, um, is an appropriate word for the time we're living in, but um, also... You know, we just love it when God gives revelation of what his word means in ways and in passages that in some ways perhaps have been difficult to to understand. And we're going to look at one of those passages today, and not only will we uh, gain some deeper revelation, but <clears throat> I think that it's very appropriate for where we are in this season so Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. We'll also be referring to John chapter 9, but we'll be referring to that. So Mark 8, verses 22 through 26. And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to anyone in the town. You know, this passage has so many odd components to it. And it's, it's got so many odd components, but you realize that if it's, if it's that way, that there must be something of immense power in this, uh, in this passage that maybe we've not seen. And I, I really do believe that it is the case here. There were two times in the New Testament when Jesus ministered to blind people in a rather unusual way. One of them is right here, and we'll come back here in just a minute and talk more specifically about what, um, what these rather odd tellings say to us. But the other one was in the book of John uh, in the ninth chapter. And both of these times, Jesus was dealing with a blind man. Both of these times, there was the element of his saliva that was applied to the blind man's eyes. And, but, but in both of those, uh, on the one that we're going to be looking at here from Mark, it speaks about where we are right now, in particular regarding trees and being trees of righteousness that the, the time in John 9, it speaks about the religious challenges that, that Jesus uh, performed that miracle to address. And the strange thing about John 9 is that entire chapter, 41 verses, is about that, that miracle of, of healing. You know, that's an amazing thing. How many other times in Scripture do you see a miracle that Jesus performed 
And it, it, it's 41 verses to tell the story. I mean, an entire chapter. Of course, chapter breaks were made by the translators. But 41 verses. And then, going into chapter 10 of John, there's a continuing deliberation between the Pharisees and the Lord and the man that was healed and the guy's parents. And so, John, the beloved, seemed to think that that was such a significant miracle that it had to be expanded upon. And I think that's really interesting. Of course, in John 9, you had this man, Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and the disciples note this blind guy sitting over by the road. And one of them says, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be blind, born blind. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be manifested in him. And this is really a significant thing. So Jesus spits, makes a paste, a clay as it were, and smears it on this guy's eyes. And then he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll be made whole. Well, you, you know that story. And, of course, the pool of Siloam was where the priest would get the water that would then be poured out at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus also, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come unto me, the quoting of Isaiah. And so there is significance in that story, I think, regarding the religious mindset, the religious mindsets of the people, how that that man was born blind. And that if you've not read that story recently, you need to read it because the words that this man is saying to the Pharisees and then the, the artful dodging that this man's parents are hedging what they say to the Pharisees, it's really, really an amazing thing. It tells you that people are people no matter when they lived, uh, whether they lived back then or whether they live now. I've seen, I've seen similar kinds of of uh, uh, linguistic dances go on in the church where people don't want to give a straight answer and they're telling every other thing because they don't want to offend this one and they don't want to get in hock here and they don't want to get in trouble over here. This whole story is amazing. But in the middle of it all, Jesus is addressing the fact that this guy was born into a scenario where basically the entirety of the religious world was blind. And they had become far less than what God created them to be and gave them the land and their heritage to achieve. And so he, he spits into uh, the clay, and it says it made clay, so I, I, I just assume that was mud. It may have been some kind of soil that, that actually formed clay. I don't know. But the point, though, is that he puts it on the guy's eyes, and he says, okay, you go to the place where this water that Hezekiah made that pool, Sandra, uh, he goes to the place, gets the water, and um, the same water that they would pour out to signify the going forth in tabernacles, which is what they were supposed to be doing from Jerusalem. They were supposed to be extending the kingdom from that temple throughout. And so the beautiful picture of that, the very Son of God, God himself created 
you and me and all humankind out of the dust of the earth, and he formed it as a clay and put his spirit within, here is the Son of God making clay, putting it on this guy's eyes and says, go and you wash in this place that signifies the going forth. To me, it's an incredible story. And, you know, a lot of people get hung up on the fact, you know, how dare Jesus spit in the ground and that poor blind man smear mud. Here's mud in your eye. You know, do that and then send him. You imagine, did, did this guy, now Dennis could tell this part much more humorously than me, but who led this guy to the pool of Siloam? Not only was he blind, now he's got a cake of mud on his eyes. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Did somebody lead him? His parents obviously didn't because they were trying to, they were distancing themselves from this story so far. They didn't want to get in trouble with the, with the religious folks and get booted out of the synagogue, which probably would have been the best thing that could have happened to them. I don't know how he found his way over there. Maybe he called an Uber. I don't know. But he gets over there, and he washes, and he's made clean, and he comes back, and they're all saying, is this the guy that was blind? No, no, it can't be. Looks like him. Why don't you ask him? Yeah, I was born blind. Who did this to you? It's a crazy story, but it really is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. And then you see the religious leaders that are doing backflips, trying to d disprove the thing. Can you imagine arguing with somebody that had been blind since they were born? And now he can see, arguing with him, no, no, no. Monty Python could really take something and do wonders with this story. No, no, you're really not, you really can't see. How many fingers am I holding up? Both hands. See, you didn't see that. You're not really free, you can't see. But they're trying to convince him. And then, okay, this guy who did this, you know, he, he's not following us, so he must be a sinner. So how can this happen? It's an amazing thing. So it's a story about religion and how religion has lost its way and how the very Son of God gave himself, the, the one who created you, the one who formed Israel, is now taking that same process, putting upon the eyes so that you could partner with the ways of God and to fulfill your heritage. And even after the miracle transforms this one man, the religious people who see it and cannot deny it don't want to have anything to do with it. Isn't that interesting? So we come to our story here in Mark 8. Another blind guy. Another time where Jesus' saliva, almost said spit, that's what we would say in Texas, um, and in King James even says it, but only this time it's not, here's mud in your eye, it's just straight spit in the eye. And this is an interesting thing, because obviously John 9 took place there in the holy city, and I don't mean Rome, and here in Mark 8, it's in this little place called Bethsaida. Now, what's significant about this story? And I, I'm so grateful for the things that God is showing to us, especially immediately before we have a, a, a good-sized team going into Brazil where one of the most notable rainforests in the world is in existence. Um, I'm so grateful for the way that God is opening up 
the understandings of his word about us being trees of righteousness and how the tree itself, um, how it processes impurities and uh, carbon dioxide and and then produces fruit for how it handles that, and then it draws water up through that process of the leaves doing what they're supposed to, and then the water being released. And we, we shared uh, a couple of weeks ago over these past couple of weeks about how weather, weather patterns uh, are, are created in that way, how science has been discovering that not only in Amazon but in the Congo. And even they started, I think, well, I won't say that because I can't verify that, in another rainforest. Uh, but they're verifying that the trees themselves uh, God uses to generate the beginning of the, of the seasonal process and the beginning of the former rains. And then as you process that in, in your intimate time with the Lord, in your sha'al, you ask for the latter rain. So it's that process of the cycle. I'm so glad the Lord is showing that. It's such a wonderful thing. And um, part of that discussion leads us to this passage. Why did this miracle in this unusual way take place at this location? Well, there they are on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which was also called the Sea of Gennesaret, which was also called the Sea of Tiberias. It just mattered where you were on the relationship of this lake as to what they called it. Kind of reminds me uh, when we were in um, uh, traveling through Russia and taking the trains, um, the, the name of the train station in Moscow depended on where you were going. So you went to Leningrad Station because you were going to Leningrad. <laughs> and and you, you went to and it was just that way. And, and I think, well, you think that with all the communist heroes that they have, you know, just give, give some of the socialists here in, the, in our country some opportunity. They'll name these train stations by some really provocative names. But it just, they, wherever this train is going, that's what we're going to call this big station. And, um, but on the Sea of Galilee, this was the, whatever, whatever the people group, whatever... The, the place was known as well, Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. It was on the, the banks of this. And it, it was the place, it was really the headquarters of fishery. And it was also the headquarters of Baal worship, which is probably why she was possessed of seven devils. Because in some way, that, that mechanism of worship of the demonic was still rooted there in Israel. Ahaz did a pretty good job, and probably Solomon pitched in too, paving the way for Ahaz. But there, they really made it a, um, they made it a, a great pursuit to offer their offerings up to the demonic so that they believed that their fishing would be good, that their weather patterns would be good. And so all around that lake, there were outposts of the demonic. And, you know, we don't read about that in the Scripture, but if you dig a little bit deeper and you see wh what are these people actually doing here, why was it significant that there was a legion of unclean spirits positioned on the opposite side of the lake, and why were there those guys hanging around in the, the, the tombs, and, you know, why was there pig farming there, 
And what, what was that all about? And that's an interesting story, too. So we often just think about the Sea of Galilee, and, you know, we get this peaceful scene, you know, Jesus standing and the sun dawning and the storm parting and, or him walking on the, storm, on the water. You know, we see those things. But behind all of that is some really powerful points of warfare. So in John 9, you see an address of spit and mud in the eyes regarding religion. Here, you see spit in the eyes regarding basically uh, what people should be doing instead of worshiping the, the demonic. And this is really an interesting story. It just really, really is. And so <clears throat> Jesus is working all these these wonderful miracles right in this area. You know, he had just fed the, the thousands. You can read about it. It's good reading. And then a little bit there in the same group, he raised the, the little girl from the dead. Here he tells this blind guy, don't tell anybody, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But to the de demoniac of the Gadarene region, he says, go and tell all your family. When the little girl's raised from the dead, they're astonished. They see things into the spirit realm in accordance with what the Scripture actually says. They're astonished with great astonishment. We've studied about that in the past. And Jesus said, what you've seen here, don't say. Because it doesn't make any sense that if you've got a 12-year-old girl that was dead, they've got a six-piece brass band weeping and wailing over here. You've got all these people, oh, did you hear about the little girl over there? She's dead. For Jesus to raise her from the dead and say, okay, don't tell anybody she's alive. That makes no sense, no how, right? Because you can't keep that quiet. Why would you? Um, but it was, it was in regard to what they had seen in the coming back through of this girl's spirit into her body. That's an interesting story, too, which we're not going to talk about here today. The various times when Jesus said, don't tell anybody, and why he said that. Now, some people, I even heard it preached here one time, well, the best way to have people tell everybody is to tell them to not tell anybody. Well, you got to be really careful where you go with that, especially when it's the words of Jesus. Because where are you going to draw the line? Well, you know, Jesus said this, but what he really meant was this. There's a lot of that going through the church right now. Not this one, but a lot of that going on. You know, this is the scripture here, but, you know, that, that, uh, that's not translated properly. You know, that's an error. You know, even great students of the word say that this wasn't in the, the manuscripts. Or, you know, if you add uh, the words of Buddha, it really clarifies this in a better way. And, you know, there's no judgment anyway, so Jesus couldn't have meant this. You've got to be really careful when you say, Jesus said this, but he really meant that. So in every one of those instances, there are really powerful reasons why Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And I think for the little girl, just a couple chapters before, what those parents, that the Lord allowed those parents to see, and the translation of the terms itself shows that they saw much more than just breath coming back into their daughter's body. And Jesus said, don't say anything about this. And you know, the wonderful thing is, I, I kind of wish that it was written somewhere, but the wonderful thing is that, that nobody said anything about what they actually saw. But there are, there are very specific words that say there's a whole lot more here to this that, that they all witnessed, and it's, it's glorious. 
And, you know, the beauty for us is that we're living in those same measures of opportunity and power. The very things that, so many of them, that you witness as an intercessor, that you witness in prophecy or you witness in ministry, uh, those are choice things that the Lord reveals. Now, you've got to be careful not to cast those before swine because sometimes you're giving the enemy you know, you, you talk about that kid that was in the Air National Guard that released all of those classified documents. Uh, you know, that was an embarrassment. I still don't know how that really happened. But you're really tipping the enemy off as to things that he didn't know that he shouldn't know. And sometimes I think the way God moves through the church, you've got the dichotomy of the Bible saying that I'm going to reveal these things to my ecclesia and I'm going to let the enemy see that this is what's being done. But then on the other hand, there are some things that the Lord says, don't make this known. And I think we have to have the wisdom to know the difference. See, some Christians think that's just whatever they get, they can just blab it out there. Why shouldn't we let everybody know? That's not the way Jesus moved. Now, there were some things that he said, go tell everybody. And there are other things that very clearly he said, don't say anything. So just a couple chapters before, the little girl, Mark, you know, it's just right there. It's amazing. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just, this is just wonderful. So many of these things in the Bible just speak to us. But here he comes to this man in this, this place of Bethsaida. They had gone across the lake, and there were the Pharisees, and it was almost like they had they, as my dad would have said, they seen him coming. And they're all, as soon as he gets out of the boat, they start questioning him, and they start saying, show us a sign, and they start really uh, maligning him. And he, he looks to his disciples, and he says, get back in the boat. And they go back across to the place where they had just left, and here's where they meet this man. And this little city of Bethsaida, um, was an important place in, in, in the spirit realm. In fact, Jesus chastised Bethsaida and Chorazim, if you remember that, and said, look, the, the glorious things that have been shown in the power of God and in the glory of God, it, 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 they've been shown to you. And when the time of judgment comes, you, Bethsaida, and you, Chorazim, it's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's an interesting thing. Jesus targeting this place. Why is he targeting this place? They don't even know where this place is now. It's just, God, I guess, judged it. I mean, they can speculate as to where it is. But this particular place, and some of the, some of the, trans, some of the locations call this Genesaret then. And this was supposedly the most fruitful place in all of Israel. Um, Eusebius said that it was the, the Garden of Eden of Israel. And it's a, it was a three-mile stretch where just anything grew. The soil there uh, was, was just uh, head and shoulders above any other type of growing soil. And they, they grew the most voluptuous fruit, and, and it was just known as a place of, of great horticultural um, advance. And that's, that's this area. Now, as I said, all around that lake, there were so many 
places where the people of God and even the people that the ites that they drove out uh, when they came into the land had worshipped Baal and worshipped Dagon and worshipped Ashtaroth. And it's particularly here in this area, the cult of Ashtaroth, which Jezebel represented, was very strong. And in the history, the people there did all kinds of heinous things as offerings before the demonic. And they believed that this place that God created and gave all this wonderful blessing of the soil and the climate, that somehow the demonic was responsible for that. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? So Jesus worked some of the greatest blessings, even the feeding of the thousands, which just occurred. I mean, you have to put that into this context. How, how in the world were these people out in a wilderness that close to this garden, this crucible of production, and nobody even thought, well, hey, we could just go over here. It's a, it's a veritable farmer's market just a few miles away. We could just load up and just bring cartfuls back here. Nobody said that. Jesus works the miracle. We don't need the demonic to have a miracle of provision. We don't need the demonic to see my blessing come. What do you have? Oh, this little bit? Let's feed thousands with it. It's so interesting. And all of these things happen here. It's, it's just interesting to me. So he comes back across the water, the, got, got rid of those crazy Pharisees, and now he comes and here's this story that we read in Mark 8. Mark 8, 22. He sees this blind, they brought a blind man to him. They wanted him to hapto, to ignite the fire upon him because they had heard that this was what Jesus did. And so what does Jesus do? He takes this blind man by the hand and leads him out of the town. That's significant too. Now, I don't know all the framework of what was in that particular area that Jesus led him away from, but it's obvious that he wasn't there to work signs for the Pharisees. He wasn't there to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the shrines that were probably set up where this guy was. He takes him by the hand and leads him out from that to a private place. I think that's very significant for us to see. But then what's he do? We just read it. Let's read it again. We'll read it because it's so unusual. We just want to make sure some naysayer isn't saying, that's not the Scripture. Well, here it is. When he spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, in the hands, that's a, a, a variation of his stemme. So he was, through his hands, he was igniting this man's calling. And he asked him if he saw and the man looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. Now let's talk about that. The first thing is Jesus lays hands on him and ignites the histemi that God had put within him, but he really ignited a deeper histemi that really spoke about what not only creation was supposed to be, but what this man and all of us were supposed to be as trees of righteousness. And the wonderful thing, there's so many wonderful things here. He spit on this man's eyes. 
Do you realize that that term translated as eyes was only used here in all of the New Testament? It's, it's not any of the other variations of words for eyes or sight, but this word, oma, is, is, was used to describe a deep measure of perception, something that you would only see uh, when you really viewed things from the deepest measure of meaning. It was a very, dare I say, intimate measure of expression where a realization and a dawning upon, and dare I say, even a fulfillment was found by whatever it was that you were perceiving, whether that was a realization or whether it was something real time. And we've, we've had that sometimes in our lives. You know, we're going through a perplexing time, and then we, we see something, and it's a, it's a meeting of seeing and realization, and all of a, all of a sudden it dawns on us. And seeing that breaks through. Seeing that breaks something. And you're free. We've all felt that. We've all seen that. Maybe you'd been blinded to the truth leading up to that point. But now the revelation comes and the truth has set you free. Out of all of the Word of God, this is the only time this Word is used. And it's there that Jesus applied the divine saliva to. And for this man, in combination with him laying hands on the guy, calling forth a histeme, and having the, the spit of the very Son of God on this term, what does this guy say? Jesus says, what do you see? And there, <laughs> in that place that had been so prominently, demonically worshipped, this guy says, in this crucible of some of the most wonderful farmland and harvest places in all of Israel. This man says, I see men as trees. And not only are they trees, they're, they're walking. Now, what does walking mean? Uh, this peripateo it is usually used to signify some course of pursuit, like Jesus walking on the water or Jesus uh, going from here to there on a specific mission. In the, in the ancient Greek language, this really meant a way of life. And we, we use that in our colloquialism. We say, uh, you know, he's, this, is, this is his walk of life. This is just what he does, which means this characterizes who or he or she is supposed to be. Uh, sometimes the... The, the Greek teacher, Socrates, was famous for giving his teachings as he walked. And this was the term that was used to describe. And even it was, it was used to describe the code of his teaching format. And even the students said, yes, I've, I've walked with Socrates. And that, that meant that you were not only out for a stroll, but you were gleaning from him. And so... He says, when Jesus touches this central place of understanding with the spit, <laughs> I don't know whether Jesus just right into his eyes or put it on his, on his uh, fingers and put it there. I don't know, but the point was that it touched a deep place in this guy, and suddenly what you and I are supposed to be, the way God wanted us to be in the garden, this is what this guy sees. 
He says, I see trees and they're functioning. I see trees and they're fulfilling some kind of course of action. This man had not seen trees. He probably felt them. He probably heard them. People probably described them. But suddenly he sees, I see people and they're fulfilling what God created them to be. I think this is phenomenal. Now, let's go back to what some would interpret this passage as. And it, it always seems strange to me that Jesus needed a do-over. You know? Here's the Son of God. Can you see anything? No? Here, let me try that again. I must have got something wrong. Do you think Jesus ever did that? Does, does any of our uh, crazy attempts to uh, explain this passage, uh, would there be any justification for saying that Jesus screwed up the first time, which I have been known to do, don't say amen, um, and you probably have too. Of course not. This is exactly what was supposed to happen where? In a place that Jesus chose, in an area that was known throughout all of Israel, and in an area where the demonic had a great uh, measure of improper devotion offered to them. And so Jesus touches this man. The spit of the Son of God goes upon the eyes, only used there by the divine author by a term this is a one and done. There it is. It's nowhere else. And this guy starts talking about seeing trees. Don't you think that's interesting? And they're functioning. So then Jesus, after that, he put his hands upon the guy's eyes and made him look up, and he was restored, and his perception now was to view things as we do. This is a, if the first one in John was about religion, this is about what you and I are supposed to really be, and especially be that in the very midst of the enemy that doesn't want us to be this, or the enemy that has promised things that God wants to do through us. That's the beauty of this, of this passage. And then he says, he sent him away to his house, and what's he say? Don't go into the town. Don't tell it to anyone in the town. Now, what's that? That's not an evangelistic strategy. You should be, the, the Brazilians should be making videos of this, putting them up on, on FaceTime, or put it on the billboard. Come out now, one night only. Jesus here in Bethsaida, the garden spot of Israel, healing, setting free, delivering. And there will be special vials of divine spit available for your purchase. Guaranteed. To bring you relief. 
don't go into the town that I just led you out of and don't tell anybody in the town. This is spiritual warfare right here. It can't be explained as any other thing, especially when you recognize what's going on in, in that very place. I, I love that story. Remember when we, uh, we, we study American literature history, literary history, and when Mark Twain was a correspondent for some newspapers, uh, remember they would pay him to go uh, and travel to different places and to write kind of travelogues in his own inimitable style. And so he went into the Holy Land, and it's really, it's really funny to read the things that he says. If, you, if you've never, I'm sure you can pick it up on the Internet cheap, uh, but it's really funny to read his, his statements from the late 1800s of, of what the Holy Land was like. And he said, we came to the Sea of Galilee, and when I saw the, the prices of what they were charging uh, for the boats, I recognized why Jesus just decided to go ahead and walk across. <laughs> oh, man. But we have so many, so many things that happened in, in regard to this lake. And, of course, the Jordan emptied into it from the north. Um, but the one thing that we really don't ever talk about were the, the places where the people of God uh, positioned demonic worship all around this lake. Jesus references it. It's just not, it's just not personified. Um, the disciples certainly recognized it. But this story is amazing. So wh why is this so amazing for us today? Why is this so important? Because God has been showing us the latest scientific discoveries regarding trees, what they do, how they participate in the seasons of the Lord, how when you understand what's being discovered now, which could not have been discovered at any other time due to the scientific limitations, when you understand what is being revealed about how trees create this process and what they do and how fruit is produced and how that applies to us, all these stories that are in the Bible about trees and fruit and processing and what you do and what you don't do and bitterness and healing of waters, all of these things that God, I mean, you can't hardly turn a page in Scripture without God talking to us in that way. And you recognize, as we've shared over the past couple of weeks, that the main issue with Adam and Eve rebelling was Satan wanting to eliminate this process, spiritually and otherwise, that God created men and women to achieve with him. And the trees of life and the river of God and how this is what is to be happening in our day to bring healing to the nations. What does that mean? How does that mean? God is showing this to us. And so here is Jesus in this area that is so well known in the Scripture for so many reasons. And we look beyond the wonderful stories that we know, which are inspiring, which are glorious. How do you think that storm rose up and was trying to captivate the boat where Jesus was nestled in sleeping soundly immediately before that face-off 
with the legion of unclean spirits, an army unit of unclean spirits. That happened on these shores. This was a bastion of spiritual warfare. All of these stories we know, if you dig just a little bit deeper beyond the, the flashy uh, the artwork on the cover, if you look, why did this happen here? Why did this occur here? Whoa, it's because of what we're called to be before the Lord in the face of the enemy that doesn't want this happening. And here Bethsaida is one of these. And I just think it's so fascinating to me that, and only God could do this, that when Jesus spit on this guy's eye, the term that is used is only used there for eyes. And it speaks of the very deepest understanding of what this man could know. So you have the Lord laying, hapto, his hand, igniting the fire in the deepest place of his esteme within, the spiritual deposit, the identity within him. And then you have the saliva of the Son of God on that deep place of perception. And what does this guy emerge with? Hey, we're supposed to be trees. Oh, look at the function those trees are depicting. How beautiful that is. How wonderful that is. This was the first miracle that Jesus performed in this remote place in the shadow of where the demons had been worshipped. I think that's phenomenal. And then Jesus says, he doesn't say it, but this didn't surprise him. It certainly wasn't, "Uh uh-oh, I guess I miscalculated. It's kind of like, uh, did you ever get, those of you who wear spectacles or contacts, did you ever uh, get uh, an eye exam and then you take it to whoever's going to produce your lenses or whatever and somehow you go back to pick them up and it's not done right? And you say, something's wrong here. Oh, what's the first thing they say? Oh, it'll just take your eyes some time to adjust. And then the next thing I say is, I've been wearing glasses since I was five years old. I know this is not a matter of adjustment. Something's wrong here. Oh, no, 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 it couldn't be that. And then you check it out. And then when they say, oh, yeah, we made a mistake, they kind of say that very quietly. (laughs) Remember that story of our, our friend Dolph, who was an evangelist in the Netherlands, and he told the story. He had these little circle glasses. You know, he looked very owl-like. Nice guy, really funny guy. And he said, uh, I was having something that I thought was spiritual warfare. He said, because one day I could see wonderfully, and the next day I, it was, everything was blurry. And the next day I could see wonderfully, and, and the next day everything was blurry. And I thought, what is going on? I have people praying for me. And so I went to the... Uh, I went to the ophthalmologist. Say that on a dr- with a dry mouth. Uh, if 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 we were going to have a spit line right now, I would be out of bounds because I have no <laughs> I'm dry as I'm dry as Job's turkey in here. Um, you know, and he said what what he was doing was he was cleaning his glasses and the the lenses were spinning around, and uh, so he would clean them. And then things would be upside down. His bifocals would be up and instead of down. 
And then the next day when he'd clean them, they'd be back in alignment again. And he had a good laugh about that. That this wasn't Jesus messing things up. He was going to the heart of what this man was created to be and what you and I are created to be and how we're supposed to be functioning before the Lord as trees of righteousness. And that is literal. That's not a poetic thing. What we do as intercessors and as people who process the promise of God is so like what the trees do. And, and then he just lays hands on him. And the guy now can see things. Why he wasn't supposed to go into the town probably was for his own safety. Because those people that worshipped the demonic, you know, the religious people were mean. And they could get violent. But you start messing with the, the racket of the demonic. Look what happened to Paul. You know, Mark was teaching about him being, them th being thrown into the slammer. And um, it was because they put at risk a high-volume uh, business uh, measure. You know, all those farmers and all those people that were paying money for blessing and were paying uh, money for icons to try to bless their crops and to bless their fisheries, um, that was at risk if this guy went in there and started talking about, look what the Lord has done, so don't go into the town. And don't tell anybody in the town. I don't know where this guy was living. Probably some little hovel someplace out in, the, out in the groves. I don't know. But that's where he was told to go. Don't you think this is interesting? This explains so many things. First of all, explains why there were two measures of prayer over this guy. It's very clear now, no pun intended. But we see this. It's very clear. It's just, just a wonderful thing that the Lord is opening. Um, but also to recognize that we, through the mandate of the Lord, are being sent into places to make disciples around the world where either religion or the demonic has a death grip upon the people and upon the land. And in some places, there's a hybrid of the religious and demonic together, which it seems like we need to lay hands on Mark before he goes up to Washington, uh, because I'm pretty sure that's going on up in, in our nation's capital. But in various parts of the world, you either have the strong stranglehold of religion or you have uh, a, a demonic stranglehold, and most places you have both. Here is Jesus working this healing. We need to have people set free to see if they're bound by religion, they need to be set free to see. Part of our prayer this week is to ask God to open the eyes of people and to put a burden within them, a burden of God's choosing. May God's anointing and may his touch touch the deepest parts of people so that they will be open to understand and see things for the first time of what God created them to be and that they would have an understanding of the things of the Scripture and an understanding of what their role and their identity should be in this earth. It's all right there. But the blinding of the eyes have kept this from being. You know, the Scripture speaks about the God of this world blinding the minds of people lest they should see the glorious gospel and lest they should glorify our Father. I believe that God is giving us an anointing to, to 
dissipate that cloud, that fogginess that keeps people from seeing. It's very interesting, very interesting indeed. But here, our Lord, the two times that he applied spittle to people's eyes and um, why he did it, the solution for both, for the religion, religious people, is that you're going to have to walk this out. And you're going to have to go and start fulfilling what you're supposed to be as tabernacles of the Lord. And you need to do it regardless of what the religious people do and what they protest. Here, it's in the setting of the demonic. Here, it's in the setting where people gave glory to the enemy instead of to God for God's blessing. And this was the heart that destroyed many different kings and many different rules throughout Israel's history. But it's the function of a person before God and what they were really created to be. I pray for you, for all of us, that we would keep seeing, that we would not, you know, Ava had a word, I mentioned this earlier, about scales falling off people's eyes. I thought that was really interesting in light of what God put on our heart to talk about today. We have the blessing of being able to talk about what true religion is and the blessing of being able to talk about what individuals' identities are supposed to be as trees of righteousness. We need to understand both of these passages because there's an empowerment for what God has put upon us to minister in the days to come. I think this is just a great blessing to us. And so we receive this, and not only to receive the understanding, but we receive the efficacy and the power of this so that we can confidently minister. So, for those of you who want to do some other study, you can start digging deeper into stories that happened all around this sea. Uh, it's one thing to cross over Jordan. It's another thing to take dominion over what the Jordan becomes. And that's what this sea represents. So you can see various points where Jesus says things that don't seem to make any sense. You don't underline them in the Scripture. But the, under, the, the, the underpinning of why he said it is this taking dominion in the Lamb. Wow. Another thing you could do is look to see all the places where Jesus said, don't tell anybody, and ask why. God will tell you if you just look. So there's a whole lot of things that the Spirit says, and you just need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. But for us today, as we come before this communion table, I think that, of course, the bread represents a lot of things. Let's just go through them, shall we, quickly. The bread was supposed to be unleavened, which means you don't borrow from whatever else has been a victory dance in the past season of harvest. You want a fresh word from God. You're not, you're not stuck in religion. Well, this is what everybody else has been doing. No, God says you leave all that and you have unleavened bread because I want to do a new thing. It's broken. 
And that word for breaking, remember, is the same word that talked about our an individual assignment. It, it goes through into the Septuagint to talk about when, G, when Moses uh, broke off the inheritance of the tribes and where they were supposed to go. That singular term in the Greek is used to describe the breaking of the bread. So this speaks about our identity and your identity. It also speaks about commune with the Father. We don't live by bread alone in the natural, but by every word that the Father would speak. It also speaks about manna, God's provision for us as we go forth into the wilderness, that angel bread, that heavenly bread. All of these things with the bread, plus the fact that you are the body of Christ, which really does align with our identity and our inheritance. There are other factors too, but that gives a spate of understanding for today. The, the blood, the sprinkling of the blood, different from the, the washing of the blood. This is a table for believers. The ungodly shall not enter in. They're welcome, but it's not for the unbeliever. This is the sprinkling of the blood, which the Lord says so many things about. The sprinkling of the blood touches the exact place that God has ordained to be touched. It activates. There's power in that blood. It's, uh, it's, it's the sign of our divine adoption because we're adopted by the blood. We, uh, the patterns of the heavens are sprinkled so that we're believing for the kingdom of God to come and his will being done. But the blood of sprinkling is what the Hebrews say, and the book of Hebrews says, is what we need when we go into the heavens to our heavenly Mount Zion. And those patterns are sprinkled there that then the efficacy and the power of it comes to earth. The blood of sprinkling. The blood of sprinkling upon the priests. The blood of sprinkling upon the instruments of worship so that we prepare the way for God's glory to be manifest through us and in the places where we're called to serve. We need all these things. At this table of grace, this Eucharistia, this table of the good purpose of God, EU, and the Charistia, which is the grace, which is always moving forward. It's always moving upward. Grace does not just, it's just not a dollop that falls on our head and we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I've been born again. No, grace is moving. We keep moving forward in grace, and that's what this table, is, according to what the Scripture says, is empowered to provide for us for the going forward. So we've heard some things today about the eyes being open and men and women fulfilling our function as trees of righteousness. And we've heard about how that this is God's plan. This is truly God's warfare. If the nations are going to be healed from the trees, the leaves of that tree, it doesn't say, I'm going to heal the nations in the end time by these huge swords that are on fire I'm giving you. You see that anywhere? I don't read that anywhere. I'm going to give you an anointment that will heal the nations. I don't read that either. But it's the leaves of the trees, the tree of life, and the waters. That's our operative battle plan. That's what I read in the book of Revelation. This is the promise of the Lord. And so we need to know that through God's anointing and in his timing, he wants to touch the eyes of the religious world and he wants to touch the eyes of people who have to exist in this battlefield, 
that God has chosen to cause us to live and serve in. And these miracles of Jesus address both of those in a rather unusual way, in a rather unseemly way, but in a way that makes perfect sense when you view it through what we've seen today. So as we enter into this worship time and as we prepare to come and receive, I ask a blessing upon each of us that whatever anointing God has sent to this place in conjunction with this message, that it would come upon each of us. And first, that our, own, that our eyes would be open, that no matter how deeply we've seen in the Lord, we'll see even deeper still. And we'll gain, only God can do that. Can you imagine in eternity, no matter how much we know of Him, a thousand years from now, there'll be something deeper that He'll show. And we'll just keep going deeper and deeper in Him. Isn't that wonderful? We need to go into the deep place that He's ordained for us in this time. And I speak that over you. And if there's any way that we've not been seeing, that God would cause those scales to fall from our eyes. And um, as we come before this table today, may all that happen. And anything else that you want, Father, let us be free today. God's good, isn't he? Amen.